and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the literary ghoul that sleeps under the city of polite society while sucking at the marrow of fantasy, Duncan Nickel. Well done, Duncan. Another strong, weird intro from you. What have you been up to these past two weeks? Oh, Geordie, first thing I've been doing is surviving. We have had a heat wave. Oh my gosh. I haven't, but tell me more about yours. I have been away from the heat wave. Uh, I think we're hitting highs of, um, record highs of up to sort of 38. There's a danger yeah. warning, a temperature warning, which is like the I've first time. I've been warned that we're going to get 40 degrees in Cambridge. 40 degrees. It's Yeah, terrifying. I haven't experienced that since I went to Nevada. I know. I haven't experienced the hottest I've ever experienced was 43, and I was literally in the desert outside of Dubai. <laughs> it's just like... Holy oh. smokes! It's such a concern. And for everyone listening from board, you might be thinking, come on, guys. Yeah, you, you can handle bitch it. boys. The come UK... On. Come on! ...not built for heat. No. I, my, no house is a vic- my house is a Victorian house. It is made of brick, and it is designed to stay warm in the winter. It's not designed to stay cool in the summer. Mine is a little better. Mine is like a 1960s concrete one, but mm. it doesn't help. Not not in these temperatures. I actually am looking forward to going into work because my office has aircon, and I'm thinking of putting in overtime just so I can spend the heat of the day <laughs> at work. That good for you, Duncan. My plan is to open all the windows, stay on the sofa. Wear as little as modesty will allow and keep all the curtains shut and watch TV all day. Well, that sounds more fun. Yeah. Uh, my big news is that I think this is wasn't true when we last recorded our episodes, that I don't have a job anymore. My contract was not renewed, so I have a lot of time to spend uh, <laughs> spend reading books, um, which, which kind of makes it hard to justify. How long it took to get through the one we're, uh, we're reading today, but more on that later. Have you been reading anything fun, Duncan? I have. Other than the book we're reading today, I read uh, The Cibola Burn by... We literally were talking about it before the show, and you were pronouncing it correctly then. Did you just do this for the podcast? What? What, what was wrong with that? Cibola? It's Cibola, man. <laughs> by James A. Corey. The fourth book in the Expanse series. Um, I know it's sci-fi, but, you know, we can talk about these books. They're just not the we subject. Can't, we can talk about them. We're just not allowed to discuss them. Oh, well, okay. But I want to do one throw out this opinion. Um, yeah, okay. So far for the Expanse, and I want to know people, and for you, Georgie, because I know you've read it. So far, the Expanse has been every single book I have loved. Genuinely mm. loved. But, so far, I'm up to book four. I would say that I've loved every single book a little bit less than the one before it. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I, I, um, I, looking back, I think, and this is having only read the book once and, and not reread it, I think Abaddon's Gate, the third one, I think it might be the best. Um, and that says a lot because the first two books are very good. I agree that the second book is not as good as the first, but... It's more like it goes from an A to a B plus. But I think Abaddon's Gate is so heart-racingly exciting, and it so, does such a good job of introducing so many new characters and making you care about them, 
despite never having met him before, and having a different range of main characters. Yeah, I think it does a fantastic job. I remember, ages ago, um, basically doing a sort of live tweeting session to everyone in our, um, in our sci-fi RPG group chat, because I was, um, I was listening to, uh, Abaddon's Gate, and I, I got to a certain point in a book where my heart was hammering from how intense the action was, and when it was done, I, w- I wiped my brow, and I said to myself out loud, whoa, the climax of this book is crazy. And then I checked the book and realized I was only a third of the way through. <laughs> oh, Dordy Dordy. I mean, yeah. I get you and I hear you. And I think that's the one where I was most close to calling Abaddon's Gate maybe better than Caliban's War. But mm-hmm. I definitely walked away from Caliban's War more emotionally attached to the side characters of Prax and Bobby. That's really understandable. I think they are some of the best side characters in the entire series. To the point. But I think it's very understandable that you would get attached to them. And that's why I think Abaddon's Gate is a little bit more impressive in how it makes you care about those characters. But go on. I I appreciate that point. But, and this is the bit that kind of like sealed it for me when I was trying to like work out my opinion. I said Mm. to myself, well, I really like Prax. They're the family man that I've reconnected there. And Bobby, honestly, I was disappointed in Abaddon's Gate when there was like a marine character and it wasn't bobby mm. i was like what well, sure come on bring bring her back and what really sealed it for me is when i sat down to think about it i was like okay yeah i remember in abaddon's gate you know you had sort of the marine character you had that sort of more scientist person you have the the person who's doing the subterfuge on the mission mm-hmm. and her history really interesting trying to avoid many spoilers as i can um but then i realized mm. i couldn't actually remember any of their names and that's when I went, oh, you probably have to give it to Caliban's War. I'm like, yeah, the Marine guy from Abaddon's mm. Gate, where I'm like, no, Bobby. Sure, yeah, you know what? That makes complete sense. Uh, yeah, my, I actually have a list of um, a list of my ranking of the Expanse books in my notes for some reason. Uh, Abaddon's Gate I've put at number one, and it's followed up by the next book in the series, Babylon's Ashes. Uh, that's so I look forward next... to that one. Oh, 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 so you mean after number four, the fifth book? That's right. After okay. Sibylla Burn. After Sibylla Burn. Fantastic. But, Jordy, enough about me. What have you been reading other than the book we picked? Yeah, so I've been, like I mentioned that I haven't been experiencing Heatwave, and that's because I've been doing some traveling. I've um, spent the past four days on a camping and hiking trip up in Scotland. Uh, it was just a solo trip. I went up with my rucksack and no one else. And I, uh, I've been hiking a, a ton. I think I'm, uh, I think I hiked just over sixty kilometers, up and down over like hills and by locks, and it was a really fun time. A uh, lot of traveling, and uh, my feet are incredibly sore. I've, I've blisters upon blisters, and it didn't help that on the way back I had to run to uh, my train. Because it was either get that train, which was thankfully delayed by like 15 minutes, uh, or wait an hour for the next one. And it's such a long way back from from Glasgow to uh, to Cambridge that I was like, I cannot wait an hour. If I wait an hour, I'll be back and it'll be nighttime. So I had to run on blistered feet to catch that train. Oh, I almost love like the irony, and I think that's the right use of the term, of like wishing for the delayed train. Mm. And it actually been delivered. 
No, I I was staring at my phone, being like, "All right, the train, uh, the train that I want to catch leaves at f- at uh, at twenty five two, and um, I'm watching time tick up, and uh, like my train is pulling in so slowly into Glasgow station, just crawling its way in. I'm like, "Come on, man, you can go faster than this. You can go faster. One minute until my train leaves." And then I can see it. I can see it as I'm pulling on the other track. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm never going to make it. I have to run for a crowd, get for a barrier, get for the people watching the big displays, another barrier, and then I have to jump on board. It's never going to happen. And it was generally this point where I was like, look, there's no point running. There's no point running because I've got tired feet and it's just going to leave and it doesn't matter if I run. And that was where I was like, what a fucking quitter thing to say, Jordy. Just accepting defeat? Come on! And so I was, so I burst out of a train door and was running in my hiking boots. And yeah, uh, and the train was so delayed that I managed to make it. And I actually didn't need to run. It was so <laughs> delayed that I could have walked. I don't know if that makes it more painful. See, nah, seems- well, I was, I was, I was too ecstatic. Although I genuinely like was shivering from adrenaline on the um on the train like i was so tired that my body was like he needs a push he needs a push to get him to get him there and evidently dumped a bit of adrenaline to me because my hands were shivering anyway i also read some books yes tell us about the books but no i got because i don't have sorry about running for the train me and my partner actually have a rule which is the opposite we have a strong rule, and it normally we apply it to buses, um, but it is never run. Because there's nothing worse <laughs> than running and still missing it. And I'd rather walk and not get on it than run and still not get on it. To me, that is just like the so, internet. So we just, you don't run. Should have left earlier. Yeah. Should have planned your life. <laughs> so, um, so, funnily enough, one of the things I've been doing a lot of since I lost my job is I've been listening to one song uh, a lot because it makes me feel better. It's called um, Such a Loser. And it's a song which tells you what a loser you are. But it's really good that you're a loser because that means that you tried even though you didn't have a lot of, you didn't have hope of succeeding. And that's impressive. And that is exactly the sort of thing which the song makes fun of people for being like people who don't run to try and get things they want. That's uh, not a dig against you. I just found it amusing. That. That I, I would of... argue that the battle was fought yep. at the planning and thought stages. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not find, I'm not going to make up for my mental failures with physical exertion, Geordie. That's not my way. I just found out that my copy of, of this book, the audiobook, comes with an accompanying PDF. I don't even know what that is. Anyway, so I've been doing a lot of reading. I've had the time for it. And I've been reading a lot of really great series and a lot of really great books. Uh, I finished the Demon Slayer manga. Uh, really fantastic ending. Uh, it's an excellent, straightforward shonen manga, and it, it's really short and sweet. Like, um, it's twenty-three issues long, compared to which is like two hundred chapters, as opposed to something like I don't know Naruto, which is six hundred, One Piece, which is like a thousand, uh, Bleach, which is like five hundred. Yeah, this short and sweet. About half the length of the other big uh, shonen adventure series. And it ends so well. Fantastic ending. You really love where the characters end up. You see a lot of great characters die. And you're like, wow, what a justified end. 
One of the better ends to a shonen manga I've read since uh, Fullmetal Alchemist. I also started reading a new series, which is Kaguya-sama Lover's War, a really, really funny series. It's a, it's a manga series which is based around comedy, and it's basically like, what if the main characters in Death Note were in love with one another? You ever, you ever read or seen Death Note, Duncan? I have indeed seen Death Note, and I'm not going to lie, that okay. idea of fanfiction, oh, that was in my mind <laughs> when I first watched it. So, um, a, a very common reading of L and Light is that they're secretly in love with one another. So, I want you to imagine um, that you have, uh, it's a setting that takes place in a high school. You have two geniuses um, who are like student council president and student council vice president, and they're in love with one another. And they are too full of pride to ever admit to themselves that they are in love with one another. Nor can they confess their feelings. The conceit of the entire series is that in a relationship, the person who confesses their love to the other surrenders some sort of power to the other. They give up, you know, a portion of their pride to admit something about themselves. And forever after, they will be sort of the one who's offered themselves up, and the other one will have superiority over them. So the mission for both these characters is get the other person to confess their feelings. So what's this? Hijinks and shoe. That sounds such a brilliant concept. It's so good, and it's so funny. Like, everything's so overdramatic, and it's all, like, all those scenes, you can imagine, like, Light Yagami being like, I'm gonna use my special powers and my genius intellect to escape the authorities and kill this person, but it's like, I'm gonna get this person to share their umbrella with me. <laughs> Alright, uh, uh, and yeah, another great series, yeah, and I've good. also been reading a, a really great book. It's actually a reread for me, it's The Count of Monte Cristo. It's one of my favorite books. It's, it's surprisingly, like, a very much a comfort read. It's sort of like, it's, it's surprisingly like something like a PG Woodhouse story because it's sort of, it's making fun of the upper classes a lot, but it's also dramatic and, and, and weirdly philosophical and full of overwrought exuberance. Uh, it's so fun to read and see all these weirdo characters be duped by the Count. And it starts off as like an adventure story and then turns into something very, very strange. It loves to take its time. Uh, I've currently been listening to it for the length of two A Song of Ice and Fire books, and I still have the entire length of A Gutter's Prayer to go. Oh, little hell. That is it's a so long good, one. How, how long is so? What's it on the out, on the clock if you run it at normal speed? Uh, I think maybe 72 hours. See, I, when it comes to audiobooks, um, I don't often listen to them. But I have started a little bit more um, because I forgot to cancel my Audible subscription. Uh, so mm. I've got free tokens. But I genuinely, because mm. the first one I got was um, Way of Kings. And I thought, oh, 40 hours, yes. Uh, but I actually find, because I don't listen to audiobooks that consistently, I can't take a big story like that in audio form. So now I'm down to it. I'm like, oh, is it something that's like more 14, 17 hours? Interesting. And like that's more my pace. And then something really on top of that, Something really kind of like pulpy or light or okay, they're all Star Wars books. Yeah. I listen to I only Star Wars. Two hours. It's a good choice to listen to Star Wars books though, because they do have those fun sound effects. Oh, they <laughs> do. I mean, yeah. they say at the start of every book, "A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away," followed by the music. 
<laughs> and you know it's someone's right. villain because they play Imperial March. But yes, we're not talking <laughs> about this. True, we true. had a book to pick. Now, we, before we, did. we start we, this, we wrote I'm, a book. I'm going to reiterate for everyone why I picked this. Because I think it's an interesting story to tell. During this week is Gutter's Prayer okay. by Gareth Hanna. Hanrahan. Hanrahan, thank you. I knew that. As I was saying Hannah, I'm like, that's not it. There's more letters than that. What is it? <laughs> no. By Gareth Hanrahan. And this is a book that I read um, quite recently. It's only October last year, November time. And Wait, you've read this before? I have read this before. Oh, I thought this was something you just picked off your bookshelf. No, 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 no. This was a book I read last year because I was in a bit of a reading slump. I just, I just don't know. I, I just come off a big load of books. Uh, I think I just finished off, I think it was a Wheel of Time book, and I was just, I was exhausted, and I, I didn't read for like a whole fortnight, it's a very long dry spell for me, and mm. I went into a charity shop, and I just saw this on the shelf, and I just, I'd never heard of it before, but the cover just, just kind of grasped me, and unfortunately... And that's this, this blue cover with three characters on it? Yeah, it... Is that it? That's the exact cover. It was sort of a, so it's three ca- it's three main characters, kind of silhouetted. It's very you've got kind of like a blue mist over it, and in the background you see this sort of looming kind of gothic city. Yeah. And I'll be honest, it instantly just kind of said to me that cover, and I wish I had the artist's name to hand. Uh, maybe Geordie will edit in him saying it in a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be Richard Anderson. He's the guy who did the cover art for Kings of the Wild and uh, Bloody Rose. So it's quite a distinctive style. It just kind of, I just wanted to instantly go into this world and explore it and see what this sort of, it made me think of something like Bloodborne. Like I wanted this to be like a video game. I wanted this mm. to be like an RPG setting and yeah, just dive yeah. into it. And so I picked up on a whim and I picked it this week, people, because those that are regular followers of this podcast will know that Last week, we talked about American Gods. And American Gods mm. is a fantasy in an urban setting about gods walking the earth amongst people today and what happens when gods die. And in that loosest strain, this is the same book. I think it formed a funny yeah. comparison. <clears throat> yeah, that I can see. I saw at some point why you picked this book afterwards. Um, I kind of wish you'd gone with my idea of reading small gods because uh i've not read it i've only listened to the bbc adaptation of it and um yeah you're definitely right about being an rpg setting it definitely feels like a video game um it wasn't like say our episode on a book that shall not be named now it will our book on the empire of the vampire in which i could say i can actually point to the three video games which this book is inspired by and say the author of this book has played these video games was like i should turn these three video games into a book it's not like that but it definitely felt a lot more like something which you know i should be talking to npcs and they should be telling me these things as opposed to characters in a book it definitely had that vibe for me it was this kind of nice line um I'm quite a fan of the Lowtown trilogy uh, by Daniel, okay. and I'm going to mess up his last name, so hold with me. 
Daniel Polanski. Thank you. I wanted to get that right, and that's probably still in the right pronunciation. Um, and also yeah, Daniel Green. Um, for people who don't know, hopefully, if you listen to us, you definitely know the far the most famous kind of book YouTuber. Um, his novel, uh, Breach of Peace and Rebel Screed. Dan Polanski did his Lowtown trilogy. These more kind of urban fantasy books that have a, maybe a slight detective element to it. I'm a big yeah. fan. We'll probably cover Lowtown um, at some point on this podcast. And I'm kind of into that vibe. So even though mm. there were problems with this book, it was just on the right kind of wavelength for me. And it had those nice elements of um, a city kind of built on top of itself. Some of the unique creatures in it. Uh, we'll talk about more yeah. later about the crawlers and the revelers and the idea that like this city yeah. is almost tiered. Like at the very, you know, you've got top and you've got like the upper, the kept gods. Then you've got going down, you've got the gods of the ghouls and then the crawlers. And right at the bottom, you've got that almost Cthulhu level deep dark ones um yeah and i really enjoyed that setting problems a bit i just wish i was in ankh morpork man that's what this book made me want i was like when i saw the rockmen rumbling around i was like i miss detritus i wish i was with detritus right now oh okay i think you need to just step forward geordie into the limelight and kind of give your your piece on this book because i mean i just it got better it got better. At a certain point, I was like, oh, this is this is okay. This is all right. I can enjoy this book. I just was like, all right, yeah, it gets to the fucking point, right? This book had a lot going against it in my book. The first of which is that I'm not a huge fan of this type of fantasy. Like, I'm not a big fan of industrial punk fantasy. That's what I'm going to refer to it as. Fantasy which takes place in, like, a somewhat industrialized or Victorian city. Like, it really doesn't appeal to me that much. Uh, when when I go to books like that, something which, like, takes place in, like, the hideous swamp of smog and, and grinding gears, I kind of want something that's a little Dickensian. I want kind of big characters... And um, I want characters who feel like they live in, say, the Victorian period. Whereas this book kind of feels really, really weird. It was hard to get a sense of place. On one hand, I guess that's deliberate because it's about, like, different eras, like, persisting on in an ancient city. Like, you had one character who's, like, a literal paladin, a knight in shining armor. But there's also a line of dialogue where someone goes, I know my rights, I want to talk to my lawyer. And that, that I'm like, you can't say that. You can't say that in this book. You can't say I want to, I want to speak to my lawyer. That's what you say in modern times. You, you think people in Victorian era didn't demand to speak to their lawyers? You don't say the line of dialogue, I know my rights, I want to talk to my lawyer. Because that is like, that's a cliche. And it's a cliche for modern cop shows, right? You find another way to say the same thing. Ah, see, and this is the second reason, or third or fourth, whichever one I'm on, why I thought this would be a good book to pick. Because mm -hmm. as Geordie loved American Gods, and I had to come in quite mellow or okay on it, I really liked this book. Um, it really did take me by surprise. And mm -hmm. you're right, that is a cliche. I can't defend it, really, but kind of just say, like, I enjoyed it. 
I like I really enjoyed the character of uh, Jerris, who is like he's just a bit of a cliche for the um, you know, for that noir detective. Yeah, he's he's so he's exactly such a fucking cliche. Just like this detective wandering around with a shady past and uh, hard nosed, two fisted. I'm in a good position to like this character. And I guess I, I, I guess I enjoyed the chapters that he was in. Yeah, like he was definitely my preferred protagonist for a while. It was Spa was certainly my favorite, but he's probably second place. Who was first place? Spa. Spa, sorry. I thought, I thought it was something about the Spa was second place and there was someone first place. Yes, no, Spa, no, no. I'd say so. I definitely felt that Carrie, um, who's sort of positioned as the most traditional main character, yeah. uh, is a little lacking. Yeah, but definitely. For people who haven't read the book, let's just kind of summarise. Geordie, why don't you summarise for people what this book is about? What's the premise? Sure. So this book takes place in the ancient city of Gurdon, a, um, a city with an ancient past stretching back into an- antiquity. It's seen many changes over the years and is currently going through its sort of industrial period. It's a city full of ancient magic and modern alchemy. It's uh, deluged with crime, where we interact with thieving guilds who are hiding beneath, like, the alchemical guild, and we, we see the, the city watch come into it as the law enforcement. This book has a... Str- has, uh, it puts all its eggs in the, um, the world-building basket. It's really, really trying very hard to create a world... Uh, which it definitely succeeds in. Uh, come to the end of the book, I can't dispute that. I ha- it has a strong sense of place, and you sort of really get your get get a sense of what the world is like. But the drama of the book comes in after three thieves thieves uh, break into the Tower of Law to steal a document. The tower explodes, and something is unleashed. Dark, ancient gods are beginning to return to the city. The Black Iron Gods. The Harbinger of their return is one of our main characters, Carillon. The story sees uh, people try to capture her and use her powers. They see her come to understand these strange new powers. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's nicely kind of summarised. I think it's very interesting to highlight that each of our kind of three main characters the sort of the three thieves that go into the tower of law at the start we have uh carillon carrie rat who is a ghoul and spa they each kind of represent a bit of one of the different sort of interesting creatures of this world and for a good chunk of the novel they kind of have their own plots spa yeah. is very much about the thieves guild uh, the brotherhood and their sort of pol- politicking uh, Rat is obviously dealing with the politicking with the ghouls and spends a bit more time focusing on sort of the mysticism beneath the city, while Carrie gets carried off into this world of sort of the uh, academics and sort of the high society, and then seeing how it contrasts with the low, and then finally stepping into being the sort of the as you said the Arbinger, the paladin, the chosen one for the for the dark gods. Yeah, yeah. So you've you've caught on to one of the issues I have with this book straight away, which is that um, you have a main trio, a group of friends, um, but I don't believe they're friends. I fully agree. Yeah, I, I they, will... they don't feel like friends; they feel like strangers. Um, no, I disagree a little bit. 
Carrie and Spar, I get. I think they do build their friendship and you do see their friends by the end. Yeah, they ne- they don't interact. Spar and Rat never interact for the longest part of a book. And the one way in which Rat interacts with Carrie is they, that Rat helps her through a window. And then they're separated. Yeah, and it's, it's a huge problem. Like, in this, you've just read Sybilla Byrne. And the interesting thing about Sybilla Byrne is that right at the start of a book, the crew of the Rosinante get separated. Half are up in space and half are down on a planet. No spoilers, by the way. And they get, and that's where they remain for the entire course of a novel. Half the crew in one place, half the crew in the other. And the reason why that works, that we get our core group of characters and they get separated away, is that this is book four. We've already seen them interact a bunch. We've already seen them established as a team and as friends. So you can understand their anxiety in being apart from one another. But in this book, why does Carrie care about rats? Rats are fucking weirdo. Yeah, but it, this is their first job by the sound of things. Like, they've never gone on a heist together. Like, it's just it's just Carrie pickpocketing people and Rat being a fucking freak. Okay, we're being uh, mean on Rat here. Uh, rat in the context no, of this. No, Rat but... deserves it. Rat's weird. He's a different species. Rat's a cannibal. <laughs> He's not a cannibal. He doesn't eat his own species. Yes, he only eats humans. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I really... Uh, I actually... That's a, I've been mean because I actually really respect uh, Gareth Hanrahan for actually having the fucking balls to be like, yeah, one of my main characters eats human flesh. You got a fucking problem with that? Uh, I respect the hell out of it. But it also does kind of support your point, which is I was immediately going to lead in to say, yeah, isn't that such great world building? with the priest and he talks about like how the old way of like doing burials essentially to put dead bodies down a chute so that the ghouls can Mm. have them and that was like the agreement but it's not a character moment yeah it's not a character moment again it's more world building and i do appreciate that i think that is kind of interesting and it's sort of the weirdness of it does justify itself in the end but yeah every all the chapters that focus on rat um rat's not an interesting character there isn't a lot going on with Rat. Rat doesn't have much of an internal world. Like, Rat doesn't have complicated thoughts and feelings. And when Rat starts to have complicated thoughts and feelings, it's actually kind of jarring because it feels like they don't make sense. At a certain point, Rat gets jealous that Carrie has, like, a boy toy. And you go, wait, what? Where the fuck did this come from? What, did you like Carrie that way? Because it's not hinted at. It literally says, the, the, the sentence before, that Rat, as a ghoul, doesn't think about copulation the same way as humans. Says that in the narrator's voice. And then, Rat does exactly that. He has a Ooh. very human reaction to the girl he likes copulating. Here's the thing, though. Because is this not, perhaps, a very subtle way of showing that Rat, it's not that he's jealous but he's deeply distrustful and later revealed to be rightly so of the character of Mirren, who is Carrie's boy toy. No, because it's because he, but it, but he could have been in any other regard. The author has chosen to have rat walking and them fucking and then get jealous and apprehensive. That is what's happening in the story. And then later it's like clarified sort of like, Oh, he just had bad feelings about Mirren. Also, 
Why choose the name Mirren? Very strange. That's like a fucking... That's like a seed oil. Anyway. I, I just kept on reading it as Miriam. And I'm like, no, it's Miriam. But my brain, every time I saw the oh, word... It's, oh, it's Miriam. All right, I listened to the audiobook as usual. And um, I actually feel like the narrator might have pronounced the same name differently a couple of times. Like, I was like, what is the main mob gross's name? Is it Heimreil or Heimlein? Heimreil. Heimreil. Yeah, because sometimes it sounded like the narrator was going to Heimlein. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? I also thought for a time that he was uh, pronouncing it Heim... Was it Heimren? Like, the guy who wrote uh, Starship Troopers? Oh. Heimlein. Yeah, uh, Robert Heimlein. Heimland, yeah. I thought he was pronouncing like that, and I was like, weird choice. Okay, let's see how this goes. Oh, is this a I've metaphor? Now. Is this about a stranger in a strange land? I, I pronounced it. It is a strange land. I pronounced sure. it Himrim. Himriel for ages. Himrim! <laughs> a new type of himbo. Oh, yes. um, going back to Miriam, right. though, I, I want to make another American Gods comparison, apparently that's what I'm doing. Um, congratulations for the out sure. of nowhere sex scene. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's not as here's the thing. It's not as out as as out of nowhere because, like, what could be more out of nowhere than a character goes to sleep and then um they have a weird dream about having sex with a cat. Ta- ca- What's up, my tongue today? This is what happens when you don't speak for several days when you're wandering alone, having sex dream with cat lady. But this feels more like out of nowhere because I genuinely, D- Duncan, like, was there a scene where they speak before this? Because, and this is not a good thing for the book, I did fall asleep at one point whilst reading this book. Um, was there a scene? Yeah. Did they have a dialogue scene before this? I think they do some words, but I think it's in the presence of, like, Miriam's, like, dad in his office. And it's literally, it's not, um, it's not like a talking about their feelings or anything. It's just a, uh, you go there, or why are you there, or did you get that thing, kind of conversation. Um, uh, I'm sorry if I am forgetting something. To be honest, I most found out of place of this scene is that up to this point, I found Carrie was very asexual. I didn't think she was interested. Yeah, I agree. There's no mention of her being interested in sex or. Or having strong feelings about anyone, like, at all. Actually, at a certain point, uh, it was only after the scene happened that I found out that she was in her 20s. I kind of had assumed she was a teenager. Do you know what? Um, I did too. At the very start of this novel, it's only when I start putting together the dates with when she was, like, saying at her aunt's that I realised she was meant to be a bit older. I always assumed, because she's like that mm. pickpocket sort of street rat, I, I just went... Yeah, and everyone refers to her as, like, the girl, yes. as opposed to the that woman. That was a big factor. I put her down at, like, 17. Um, I agree. I, I, I thought say, 16, though, 17. The, the Miriam and Carrie copulation, as she phrased it earlier. Uh, fucking scene. Yeah. We can't no, call it a romance. There is a bit of it, though, where I did legitimately think and take away this reading, and I might be putting this out my arse, or this might be the, author, the author's intent... I thought it was like a side effect of the teleportation. Oh, it is. That's exactly, That's exactly what, what it is. is. Yeah. It's literally a question of like that atoms fuse to become like a spiritual one being and to recreate that sensation of closeness, they have to fuck. 
They have um, to. It's so... St I hate it. It's so stupid. It reminds me of, like, Metal Gear Solid Phantom Pain. One of your, um... One of your your sidekick characters you can get is this sniper assassin. And her, she's a super soldier. And the reason why she's a super soldier is that rather than breathing just through her nose and mouth, she also breathes through her skin. Which means she doesn't wear a lot of clothes. She wears like short shorts and like a sports bra. And that's it. Because the creator of the game has been like, I have found a way to justify... Uh, objectifying a female character. And it's it's not me, guys. It's not me. See, there's a reason for text. That means it's fine. I, I need it. See, I gave you a reason to have a stupid sex scene which adds nothing to the book. And it's just as weird and distracting. It's justified in the text. Right. I'm not a weirdo pervert. That's rude. I'm sorry, Gareth. Stop I shouldn't there. Have said that. Stop being mean to Gareth. Because there are issues with this, but it's not the reasoning of the teleportation it's not even that it's that one point you just mentioned which is it doesn't add anything really to this no plot. it doesn't it's so out of nowhere and it actually leads to some parts of just straight up bad writing like characters acting very strangely and i'm not talking about her being attracted to him like whatever i'm not given any reason why anyone should be attracted to this weird mannequin but that's fine there's a scene later, though. They wake up after having had sex. She's thinking about it a bit. She goes to wake him up to have sex again. And he reacts in a very panicked and strange way. As he wakes up, he wakes up with a start and he strangles her. He's... And he's like, don't touch me. And then he storms out. Um, an understandably very upsetting scene. For which Carrie is not upset. She doesn't seem upset at all. She's strangled hard enough for it to bruise. But she doesn't seem that alarmed about it. She's more surprised. And whilst there's... And the funny thing is that... All of the sort of tension that exists between them afterwards... Comes from him. Like he's resentful of her. But she doesn't act... Her behaviour towards him doesn't really change at all. The only thing that's different is that later, when they teleport again, and he's into, like, okay, now we have post-teleportation sex. And she's like, no. Suddenly he's, like, a real jerk. But she never, ever, ever mentions that he fucking strangled her. You see, now, I, I, I can't actually... I've got no follow-up to that one. It is a really weird scene. And it is left like it wasn't written. Like, if he just didn't do that, if he just woke up with a start, like, pushed her off the bed... And stormed out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The same. Like, don't touch me. Pushes her away and storms out. And she feels a bit hurt. That makes sense. Like, you're, you're telling me that a woman gets strangled by her sexual partner. And then is then like, yeah, everything's going to proceed as normal now. That's a fucked up thing to write. That's actually, like, bad, right? Yeah, it's bad writing. I don't get what Gav is trying to, like, add I feel like... And the thing is that, like, Miriam's response there is so obviously coded as, like, a trauma response, right? Yeah. But it's never unpacked. No. Maybe it will be in a subsequent book, because for some reason this book is a sequel. Um, I think it's a trilogy, but... 
yeah, like, I mean, we'll get onto that later, but, like, that's a weird, anyway, it's just a weird scene to write, and not unpack, or have the characters reflect on in any way. It strikes me as something where he was writing this scene, and he's going, oh, it's not dramatic enough, I need more, I need, I can't just shove it, he needs to be a bit more, and then he just, he, like, just adds description without thinking about the consequences of that. Yeah, because Miram's a bad guy. I mean, he's such an obvious bad guy. The bad guys in this book are so fucking obvious. Like, this harmless professor. I spent the entire book being like, okay, and now he betrays them. And now he betrays them. And now he betrays them. This book is not long, but it's so much longer than it needs to be. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't see the professor's betrayal, like, immediately. That's a weird inversion of us, Duncan. Normally, you're the one who sees these things coming. I think... Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to have to give some personal history here. So, I first read the this book... The two trusting of academics. <laughs> when I was at the final stages before I finally left my PhD and went back into industry. <laughs> yeah. And reading it again, I actually found, like, a lot of the academic setting quite hard to get through. And... And oh I no! I got the professor <laughs> immediately. I was like, "Yeah, you untrustworthy bastard." Whereas on my first read, I was like, "Oh yes, the the, the professor. Yes, we must trust our academical professors. Yes, 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 yes." <laughs> and like, it really. Duncan, one day you'll be a professor. Put yourself in his shoes. Exactly, um, and it really gave me a kind of a a, a a hard kind of twist on that perspective, especially with the uh, character of um, Alad Aladora. Mm. Yes, got that right. I like Eladora. I like Eladora too. I like Eladora. Uh, I think she's one of my preferred protagonists. She's probably up there with. Um, she's probably in third place. Maybe even beating out Jer. We'll see. So Eladora is a academic student who is Carrie's uh, cousin, who is yeah. the most good-natured, innocent. And I'm not going to lie, it, when I first read this book, a uh, relatable character, having a nice upbringing and working at an academic institute, I was like, yes, you're most like me. Um, mm-hmm. Slightly different perspective now. But yeah, I was seeing I things like... from her perspective. And when she was saying, oh, yeah. but the professor's so good, I was just like, yeah, Carrie, you've got to like drop your like biases against people in these like academic institutes. And now obviously rereading it, I'm like, oh... Oh, she's meant to be like the blind mouse, not noticing like this horror, like the cat. I mean, yes, that's absolutely what she's supposed to be. And you said good natured. She's also coded as being like mean because she's she's mean to Carrie uh, when they when they reunite. But she definitely has the most justified like that is a good example of like writing a character with like a traumatic background acting in a way which conforms to their trauma. Like, she resents Carrie for having left their bad family situation and that she didn't get to leave, so she holds it against her for unjustified reasons. And then by the end of the book, she's able to relate to Carrie uh, without really unpacking why. She doesn't have this revelatory moment, but she learns and changes over the course of the story. Um... That, I feel like, was a really well-written arc, and it's it sucks that uh, Carrie didn't get to have a similar arc herself where, you know, she learned something. Because at the end of the book, Carrie's the same person. Oh. She hasn't learned anything new about herself. Geordie, I was so prepared to jump in there and be, like, a positive about the book. 
Who would believe it? And you just twisted it at the last moment. Yeah, I mean, like, there are lots of... There's lots of good stuff in this book. Like, the world building... To, at the start of a story, I was like, this book definitely has the most world building. Like, they really want you to, to crack open your notebook and start writing this shit down. But actually, by the end of the book, Gareth Hanrahan has done a good job of... Well, she does lay it on thick to begin with. By the end of a book, you know it all. You've memorized it. And it's, it's, it's taken root in your brain because of how often he comes back to the same points, reinforcing. So you know, like at the start of a book, um, they lay this actual, like, bit of, like, a history textbook on you. And I said, I'm not fucking remembering this. And I didn't. But I got reminded about it again and again because characters kept talking about the same event, about the history of the ghouls and the ghouls' function in society. By the end of the book, I knew everything I needed to know about ghouls. And I was really happy with that. Good job on that account. Good. I think I want to then dive into that and actually really praise some of this world building and actually kind of unpack some of the really cool elements. So I said how I wanted this be like a world I could jump into. Geordie, I loved some of the more, I say original, to me, they were original, but like I like the crawlers. The, I like the Candlemen. Oh, the crawlers oh, the... aren't original, Duncan. They're literally from Dungeons and Dragons. Are they? Yeah. They're the star spawn. Listen, mate, maybe my DM just, you know, doesn't get around to the cool creatures. <laughs> Fuck a you. I didn't play the fucking star spawn. I had other things going on. <laughs> oh, God. I am to put up with so much worm shit, Duncan. The reason why this is so on my mind is that the crawling ones plural um it's very much inspired by the crawling one which is a a major evil force in dungeons and dragons called kios he has um the worm that walks and um he's like this entity of like millions of intelligent worms all occupying one entity and then his worms spread out and infect corpses and cause those corpses to rise and he's also the main big bad in our friend tom's campaign right now so we're preparing for a prophesized end of a world where Kios is going to send his worm army to destroy us all. And we're like, okay, we have to make our preparations for the end of a world, which prophecy says we cannot stop. Destiny is against us this time. Anyway, so that's definitely on the top of my brain. But please keep okay. going on about the other point... really original things in this book. Fair enough. Not as original as I thought, but also a really good point about originality, which is it does just depend on where you're coming from. Sure. And how yeah. probably nothing uh, is original, but from the first for you, it feels true. It. Like, there's no such thing as, like, an, the, an alchemical company. That's not a new idea, but I think it's done pretty well in this book. The Tallow Men. The Tallow Men. Tallow Men are book. great. I love I the Tallow Men. Okay, though, the Tallow Men people are these. Um, there's these creations of the Alchemical Guild. And what they are, condemned prisoners aren't just beheaded, they're not hung, they're not dropped down a chute for the ghouls. They might they're taken be off hung, to the but they're vats. certainly hanged. Thank uh -huh. you. They're taken off to the vats, and they're <gasps> turned and they're twisted and they're dipped in these vats of magical alchemical-like wax. Yeah, they are, the, the fat in their body is turned into candle wax. Yeah, and they've got these elongated, like, I always imagine them sort of Slender Man-esque figures with, mm. like, a burning light in them. Inside and them. They are inside them, and they're sent out as sort of the city guards. Yeah, so um, people's twisted minds and souls 
their bodies are turned to wax, their spinal cords are turned into wicks, they become these candlemen running around the city acting as incredibly an incredibly violent police force. Props for this being original, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it's like, you know, it's an extension of like Ed 209, Robocop sort of idea, but it's explored in a really new way. Like, um, I've only ever seen one other example of like the fat in people's bodies being used for necromancy. And it wasn't even a fancy novel. It was a one-off guest appearance by <laughs> by someone on Critical Role. Like, so this is some, this is, we're covering some new ground here as far as I'm concerned. And I really enjoy how it's, um, they're both the police force, but they're all made from the bodies of criminals. Mm. And it's seen as this, like, the fate worse than death. That not only is your kind of body and soul sort of mutated in this way, but you are then set out to hunt your own, your old compatriots. Yeah. You become an instrument of state violence. Not even state, though. It's like a private police force. Yeah, that's a good, that's, that's a good bit of world building. I like it. Um, I also like their depiction of the God War. We don't get a lot of it. No, it's but... mentioned as a background element. We do is a chapter uh, about midway through where we do kind of glance away and we see how this God War, everyone's deities in this world are basically, they pick individuals to be saints and those saints carry all their power into battle. Yeah, And we see that sometimes the avatars don't necessarily get a lot of say in the matter and it doesn't really matter they don't want to. When the God speaks through them, that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, but we There's get a very this... interesting depiction of divinity in these books uh in this book which i thought was really interesting it it, it it elaborates on an idea which i really like which is that gods draw power from belief in them the more people who believe the more sacrifices they receive the more powerful they become it's explored in american gods explored in a lot of different books it's an idea which i really like exploring but why I like about it is that it has that element. But I like the fact that this God War, you can see like originally good and like mild mannered gods, like gods of the river and gods of spring and harvest, mm-hmm. are being kind of mechanized and dragged into the conflict. Sure, sure. Uh, and the thing about these gods is that they kind of are limited in their will. I like how inhuman they are. The gods aren't like, say, you know, like in Malice, we read about two gods who are basically a god and Satan analog. But when they, when the Satan character interacts, he talks like a person, he persuades, he charms. Um, whereas in this book, the gods are barely even sentient. They are forces of divine nature. They are like metaphysical ideas made manifest they aren't people they are ideas with power so they're the notion isn't it it's the idea exactly. that what people believe these gods to be in its like most simple form that's it's like identity that's its driving thought and mm-hmm. everything after that it's almost like a like an instinct spreading out yeah it's like if the bad are... guy in a book actually says that gods themselves are no more than magic spells they have like they go in a direction. They have something they want and they just do it like a spell trying to accomplish something. They're just a force of magic. And that specific thing, the idea that gods are just huge, powerful, 
magic spells, that was the coolest part of this book. And that was something I respected most. Yay! Yeah, this book had some good parts, it, and most of it's in the world building, and other parts of it fail to sort of live up to it. But it's not... It's, it's not the... <sighs> I don't know if it's not the worst book I've ever read. I enjoyed Malice more. Oh, okay. Geordie, we shelve that. I did not. Um, okay. We'll come back to that one. Jesus. Whoa. The characters. Uh, Duncan, it comes into the characters. The characters... Okay, so we talked about the world building. We both agree it was very good. The characters yeah. are the weaker point. I think what's particularly weak about this book is often I think the side characters uh, were more enjoyable than our um, supposed main characters. Disagree. With... No, I agree. Eladora, uh, Jerez, uh, Alina. I had more fun spending time with them. I can't stand Alina. So Alina is uh, sort of a, is a chosen saint of one of the kept gods, the yep. new gods of the city. What don't you like about her, Dordie? Um, so uh, the point of Alina is that Alina is supposed to be this contradiction as a character. She's this, like, holy paladin. She wields divine power. She's a god of, like, valorous war. But she talks like a gutter rat. She swears constantly. Uh, and and she does it all in the voice of an angel. When she occupies divine power, she speaks like a heavenly chorus. But she says it was uttering, like, foul language. And I read this and I was like, oh, don't you fucking think you're clever. It's so smarmy. It is so on the nose. It is so, oh, ho, ho. I'm so self-satisfied with myself. It's a bit of fun. It's the I, I like the idea that she has this, like, the gods have chosen her kind of independent of who she is. And it plays into what I spoke about earlier, that, like, the saints and the paladins don't always get much of a say in why the gods have picked them. As we said, the gods are just spells. They're just trying to find the most efficient tool to enact their will. Mm. So I like the fact that she's, from our perspective completely mismatched and you think well why why are you chosen but then when you kind of see the gods of these spells it's like she was chosen only for the fact that she was the most efficient tool at the time to enact the god's will and not for any other kind of reason yeah i like that in concept i just don't like her character and the way she's written like she just doesn't interest me she's this tool full of plot she just suddenly shows up whenever she's needed uh, she's belligerently wandering around and it just, I don't know, she just doesn't compel me. I like the scene where, like, her sword wants her to kill Carrie and she throws the sword aside. I like that one scene. But every other time she shows up and just like, oh good, she's here to just easily win all her fights and kill the main bad guy even though she's not a main character. She doesn't... No, she doesn't kill the main bad guy. Not she kills... the professor, the sub-main bad guy. Yeah, the guy who you're supposed to think is the main bad guy. Exactly, and she also has... Also, that way. guy is such a fucking waste of a character. Like, the well, well, not well, One thing at a time, Lordy. I will okay. finish explaining why I like Alina first. Okay. But it's basically for the reason you've just said as a negative... She shows up and win her fights easily. She stays up. We get a badass bit of fighting because it's I feel a lot of characters. Badass. What the fuck are you talking about? No. She literally just shows characters. up and sets her enemies on fire. Which is cool. Like all the other characters. No, just killing Harry bad is guys isn't cool, Duncan. It actually Duncan. has to be cool. Otherwise, you'd just all be like, other... she walks into a room and everyone's head explodes. Oh, God, she's so cool. 
every other character in this book is always on the back foot, always getting kind of their asses beat. That's Spa way cooler Harry. than just winning fights. So it's a nice thing to have. Spa rescuing prisoners and what's being shot at and like slowly being whittled down and doing things anyway, even though it's, it's he's in danger. That's so much cooler than kicking right. in a door and just setting your enemies on fire. You're right. That is cooler. You're right. They're both cool. But it's fun to have these moments where we, we have our main characters who are like struggling and it's nice to see this juxtaposition to what the the tradition well called like the traditional paladin someone who in a much better position to be the hero is off doing yet they're still being ineffective even though they're like killing their way through they're no closer to kind of solving the problem i found her fun and a good thing after feeling so bad and weak and helpless reading carrie to then go to alina for a quick bit of high-powered violence it was a fun it's a nice fit it lifted you up lifted me up okay we can talk about how Spa's cool, though. I like Spa. Spa's good. Character. Spa has an interesting thing that he's a um, Spa is what you call a rock man. He has a disease in this world, which is so slowly turning him into stone. Um, they slightly overplay the um, all the rock and stone metaphors about him being unfeeling and cold. That he would sink like a stone. That's a little bit too much, but. Uh, he's an interesting character in that he isn't, like, a stone on the inside. He's very soft, and, you know, like, in better days, he wouldn't be having to do crimes. He'd be, like, an artist or an architect, and that if he'd been born to a high station, he could have had a really prosperous life and been a great man. But he lives amongst uh, he lives amongst criminals, and he's bound to a life of crime. He's he's like the son of a previous mob boss, and he wants to go back to the better days of his father, and like live a more to lead the thieves to a more idealistic life. It's a really fun kind of element. The only mm-hmm. downside, sorry, I'm going to go into negatives now. I should be just praising Spa while you're yes. praising him. Um, the only negative I had for this is I honestly found this story working almost better on its own like it almost doesn't i don't need this to be a subplot to the black gods yeah you're kind of right about that it's definitely the most interesting thing the black gods are so not as interesting as as the other some of the other stuff in this book like i want to talk about the black gods specifically later but let's let's carry on no so because yeah the thieves guild the idea that this thieves guild had this ideology it had this idea we're going to help out the people of the war sort of a robin hood idea yeah um, which is the wash, by the way, is the city's area of the mall or the slums or whatever you want to call it. The favela. Um, and the idea, you know, this Robin Hood idea and that it's been corrupted. You know, um, Idegis, I believe that's the right pronunciation, uh, Spar's father, you know, he was captured and since he's gone, oh, it's not been the same. The new ruler, Heinrich, you know, he's not really putting the people first, he's all for himself. Mm. You suspect he's a bit, he's probably sold out at some point. And just the idea of the son of the previous leader coming back. But not only that, but he's he's got a disease and he feels like he's on the clock or he's not worthy because of his illness. But yeah. the idea that he doesn't need to be a thief in a better life. But in some ways, he's choosing it to live up to his father's expectation. And he's mm-hmm. choosing to be a thief, not because of like sheer desperation, but because mm-hmm. he thinks there can be a nobility in that lifestyle to help others. Yeah. It's yeah. fucking wonderful. Yeah, it's 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 really good. 
Uh, and every time Spa shows up as a main character and is not locked in a fucking prison cell for the first quarter of the book, um, maybe even a third of the book, that's the, the most interesting character is shut up in a room, unable to move. Um, once he gets out and once he's on the prowl and once he's doing things, the book is so much more interesting. I think that it's genuinely the point where I flip from being like, I can't stand this book. And I kept putting it down and I kept putting it off and I kept reading Account of Monte Cristo instead. Um, that I finally started to enjoy myself a little bit was when Spa got out and he was able to go around and do his own thing. And the book is at its highest point when Spa was the one leading the charge. When Spa was like, I'm seizing my ambition. I'm decided I'm going to take action. But he beats up the fever night and people start to celebrate him and they enact uh, the highlight of a book, which is the second heist. This book has three heists. The opening one, which goes wrong. The one at the midpoint of a book, which goes right. And the one at the end, which is, isn't even a fucking heist. Why the fuck did you call it that? I, I honestly think it was only called a heist to tie back in because the plan is clearly not a heist. But it's not a heist! The, the, uh, the middle one the... is a good heist, and it's 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 a good heist in the way that all heists should be. It's collaborative and it's multi-pronged. They're utilizing everyone's strengths. One person is serving as the face. One person is serving as the distraction. One person is is focusing on like infiltration, and and of course, as all heists do, it goes wrong, and they have to improvise. And that's the best part of the book. And the best parts of that part are the fact that Spar's in. Because he's the leader of a heist. And he should be the leader of the gang to begin with. He's so much more interesting as a main character than Carrie. What Spar does so well is... And what Gareth does so well with Spar, sorry. Mm-hmm. Is, I also really like, is the stone disease. Um, yeah. It's not just like in, um, I don't know, like Game of Thrones. But it's like affecting his skin. The idea is that it's affecting his whole body. Yeah, and like he has to keep moving, and there's like uh, there's no cure, but there is something he can take that like makes it even feel a bit better. Mm. But the really cool element is here. Alcohol. Every time he gets injured, that bit of his body, like he's really strong. He like he'll get stronger and stronger and stronger, and then he'll yep. die. But every time he gets injured, that bit of his body will then turn to stone. So yeah, if he gets shot through the lung, that lung will then petrify. So he'll be able to keep going, but he'll accelerate the disease. So mm-hmm. in fight scenes. He can be, like, powerful, but then you know every cut he takes is accelerating the disease. Exactly. Exactly. He can't... Oh, well. He's got, like, armor, but he can't heal. You know, you and I, we could get in a fight and be, like, get a cut, and we'd be like, ow, that really hurts. And we're much more affected by that cut than him, but we'll heal. That cut That cut will become a scar, and that, that limb will still operate. Not him. Every time he takes a hit... It's, it just ticks down how long he has left to live. It's also, and I was really surprised by this, it's surprisingly well-written, uh, like a fant- fantasy di- uh, disability. Like, I, when it first got introduced, I was like, oh no, you're coding this as a disability. I don't know whether you're going to be able to pull this off. But actually, they do a good job of it. They talk about how, you know, like, that his lack of mobility... Um, it's, you know, it's become a part of his identity. And at a certain point, they're, like, curing him of a poison. And he says, hey, don't try and cure my stone man disease. In fiction, because it's too dangerous. But also because this is a part of who I am. And it doesn't need to be changed. And changing would fundamentally change who I am. 
And I was like, oh, wow, that was surprisingly well written. Uh, good for you, Gareth. I We're agree. We're in first name um, terms now. I'm also first name terms with Gareth now. And it's not just like this scene, like in the fight scenes. I really appreciated the scene where he's just lying down in a bed or in, it's like in like a narrow boat. Mm. And he just needs help getting up in the morning. And it's like, yep. you know how strong he is as a character in like the fights. But mm-hmm. because of the stone disease, he's just not that flexible. And he struggles to get out of bed. Yep. And it's just like, that's really cool. Because that doesn't demean him in how he can lead the guild or mm. fight the big battles. But it shows it's still a disability. And he just needs that little bit of extra help I to agree. be awesome. Yeah. Definitely the highlight of the book. I feel like we need to talk about the, du- the Black Iron Gods now. Because yeah, they're I a really important part of this book. And they haven't been a part of our conversation up till now. That's because they're not as interesting as the other bits. No. Um, Here's the thing, Duncan. Can you, I want you to stretch your mind back to the first time you read this book. Yes. Um, the, the prologue of this book, Duncan. The prologue's in um, like second person. It's like the That's you right. bit, isn't it? The prologue is oh. written in second person. Second person present. And in the opening of a book, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, we are taking the perspective of the building. Is that what you thought, Duncan? Yes, absolutely. I thought yeah. I was the city. I thought I was trying to make the city yes. a character. That's right. Exactly, exactly that. I thought that this was about making the city itself into a character. Because the city is so important to the book. We've talked to no end about how important world building is to the substance of this book. It's all about building up Gurdon as a place. So, of course, Gurdon has his own perspective on what's going on. It's seen all the rise and fall of different eras. Of course, it's a character. In the same way that so many series which are about New York treat New York itself as a character. But it's not the city. It's the god. It's the a god trapped god. in this bell. And we're seeing through a god's eye. And the point when I realised it's not the city, it's a god. The point when I realised that Carrie's receiving these visions and I kept thinking, it's the city. The city has manifested itself as a god because people believe in the city. Because people have generated mythologies about the city. The city has become an entity like a god. It has its own persona and now it has chosen an avatar. But it's not fucking the case. It's just some more gods. Oh, yeah. I I can see, as you were saying that now, I was like, oh, Geordie was let down. Yeah, and you know what? You shouldn't be let down because you think your ideas are better. But the whole time I'm reading this book, I was just like, I could just be reading The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin. Like, I could just be reading that instead. And then when I found out that it wasn't even that cool idea, that it was just their evil gods, I was like, okay, okay, fine, like, whatever, don't expect me to get excited again. No, I think they're just bad gods, Duncan. They're just bad gods. They are, but I like the fact that they were hidden in plain sight, that throughout it we hear the bell tolls. You know, yeah, that's a nice idea. But the idea that you get your powers whenever the bells ring, I like that. And the little connection being put together there, and I like the idea that, well, I just yeah, these gods are never going away. Yeah, they up to now you can't kill a god. Plot element about how they can, but up to now it's established in the world building. You can't kill a god, 
and that they've just been forgotten and that they're there in plain sight. And I do like that. Someone who, going around, say, the city of London, and you look at so many bits of architecture or, or a statue, and no one, you know, hundreds of people walk past that every day, and yet a small minority of them really know, like, well, what's the history? What's that symbol meant to be? Um, I have, uh, my sister does art history, and, you know, she points out certain bits of, like, mirrors on a wall, and you're just like, well, that symbolises blah, 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 because of the slave trade, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, oh, I didn't know that. I just thought that was a, you know, a nice picture, not part of our dark history and, like, the slave trade. Sorry, that's a very quickly done example. But that's the, the same feeling I got when it was revealed that these dark gods were just in the bell towers. Yeah, the forgotten dark past that becomes the everyday. I genuinely don't even know what to say about them. Like, they're bad gods. It'd be bad if they come back. They shouldn't come back. Don't let them come back. And that, that's it. The thrust of a story stops being about the city. Stops being about the city. Stops being about thieves. Uh, at a certain point, all of the thieves killed is basically wiped out. Like, there's a, there's a Mexican standoff. Some worms come in and they shoot lightning bolts. And all the thieves die, basically. And they're gone. And then Rat turns into an elder ghoul. Which means that Rat as an entity, as an ego starts to fade away and i'm like oh one of our main characters is gone replaced by a different character and then at the end of a book spa dies and in the end i'm like why would i want to read the next book why would i want to read the next book our trio is now one person it's a really uninteresting character the magical power which made her special is gone spa's dead he's our he's our most interesting character it's just carrie now why would i want to read the next one what is okay. there left for me there? Yeah. I'm going to tell you why you might want to read the next one. Okay. And I haven't read the next one, but I, when I put this book down the first time, and when I put it down this time, I was left thinking, I'd want to read the next one. I want to see where this went. Where, where could it possibly go? What could the they be th- gone? There isn't even an alchemical guild anymore. Exactly. This is the moment I see that the next one could, and I don't know, I haven't read it, but I thought, well, maybe now we're going to step beyond this city. We're going to take this world building into the wider continent. We're going to explore the God War more. Spa, you say, is gone. But Spa yes. now is the city. I don't know. Wouldn't it be cool if Spa now becomes a voice of the city? I would want to see that. I would also want to see, you know, you're right. The main cast has been decimated. But do you know what? Um, I've read books, uh, one that comes to my mind, which is, again, in the same vein sphere of this one and of, of Gutter's Prayer and low town and that's the lies of lock memora um the gentleman bastard series which is that slight urbanization of that city the thieves um and that book minor spoilers for lies of lock memora a lot of the main cast are, are not around by the end of the first book but at least you're going well what happens in the next one well we get a new cast we get repopulating you know it's an opportunity it's a fresh start that mm-hmm. said i do see how this book could work as a standalone and you literally only have to change two sentences, and it would be fine if, yeah. it, if, none, if nothing else was ever written. Yeah. Here's the deal, Duncan. I don't want to spend any more time with Carrie. Like, when I finish an Expanse novel, here's a thing that's not a spoiler about Expanse novels. Basically, every book, you get a whole suite of new perspective characters. Sometimes as many as four. But one of them is always James Holden. And James Holden is an anchor point. You're like, oh, I know what I'm going to get. It's good old Jim Holden. When I have a Jim chapter, it's reliable, it's safe, 
and he's a good sci-fi protagonist. I know what I'm getting with him. The idea that the equivalent would be spend more time with Carrie is not as appealing. I don't want to read more chapters about her. I don't, and the thing which made her interesting seems to be gone now. And the main villain of the next book is the least interesting character in the entire book. Such to the point that I genuinely didn't know if he could speak at some time. I'm not excited to read the next book. And a spoiler for the end of this episode, but it's, I'm not going to choose for us to read the sequel. If you want to read it, Duncan, it's going to have to be in your own time. That's fair enough. I do think that your complaints are... The thing is, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Mm. Well, one of the things you said, I think I did disagree. Yeah, Alina was... was Alina, I disagree. But I think what this book does well, particularly in the world building, and with the character of Spa and its characterisation of the thieves, although you're right, they do I need to make something so clear. dead at the end. Yeah? I need to make something so clear. Go ahead. Uh, my... The reason why I'm not going to like this book enough is that this might change depending on what you prioritize as a um as a reader of fantasy novels but to me world building is a really important part of the world of fantasy it's probably the eighth most important thing in a book though in terms of making a book good world building is so unimportant to me i would so much rather read a book with no new ideas i would rather read fan fiction of an already written book which doesn't generate any new ideas for itself which has good characters and which is well written pacing matters to me strong uh, a strong author's voice matters to me good characters matter to me writing in a in a you know having good writing skills not making basic syntax errors matters to me so you're saying that uh, the gutter's prayer doesn't do a lot of the above items very well no, there's just gaps in it. This is going to come down to a question of taste, and I mentioned this to you in between episodes, Duncan, is that um, this book isn't actually written in a tense, which I enjoy, and adds a serious barrier for it to overcome. That's a question of taste, purely. I have very much a preferred tense. Um, it's the only tense I can write in, because I, I just can't do the other ones. They just don't sit with me. They feel icky. My favourite tense is third person present. It's the most traditional means of writing a book. It's what most stories are written in. You know, if you go back into antiquity, you read Homer, it's third person. And it's third person past. This character did this. This character did that. This character in their past has done this. This book is written third person present. Third person present is one of my least favorite writing tenses. This character was doing this. This character was feeling that. It feels weird. It feels like you are standing in a room, but instead of watching the action, someone is standing next to you, whispering in your ear, describing what is happening. And you just wish they would go away so you could actually watch what was happening instead of getting everything through this weird filter. And the thing is, is that Gareth doesn't even, once again, first name terms, he doesn't even commit to it. Sometimes he writes in future tense. He talks about things that are going to happen after the book, which he could get away with if he was writing in the past tense, because then he could jump forward 
to a point closer to us in the past. Jump forward to after events of a story, because it's all in the past. But instead, it's present, 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 and then in the future they will learn this. Apparently, after the events of a story are done. That's a mistake. It's actually just, in my opinion, a bad writing choice. Duncan, what do you think about tense? It didn't bother me. And I, and I don't want to invalidate it bothering you or anyone else who reads this and takes that as an issue. But genuinely, it was something that it was like, I could tell you if you asked me, but at no point reading it did it even cross my mind. You know, the it's like the, the, the Sherlock Holmes, you know, I saw it, but I didn't observe it. Mm. Yeah, I saw it, but it just I just didn't think about it. It did not engage my brain. I was like, oh, yeah, he's writing in third person present tense. Do you think um, it, it didn't... adds to the story? Oh, like no. The reason why I... you write in present tense is to be more present in the action. First person present is the better example of that, I think. It's about putting yourself right inside a character's head, moment to moment to moment. It's for tense. First person present is like what The Hunger Games is written in. Because that's all about bam, 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 bam. Heart racing action. I felt this. He's coming up behind me. I'm running. I'm running. Oh, God, I have to get away. Do you know what? And I think this book would even have benefited from that, especially with the characters of Carrie Spa and Rat. Yeah. If I could have actually been properly in Rat's head, even if it was weird and twisted, like, and we couldn't quite understand what was going on as clearly. I agree. I think that would have been more interesting. I agree. I feel like third person present is sort of like this red-headed stepchild. It's neither neither that nor this. It's not omniscient enough to, to feel natural that you're standing next to them watching their story. And it's not present enough that you're right inside their head. I would much rather this way third person limited story, which is when you see things from the outside, but from a limited perspective. So you say Spa did this or Spa did that, but you only hear things from Spa's perspective. Descriptions of characters are given according to how Spa sees them. So Spa could think that someone had a sneering, ugly expression because that's how Spa sees them. As opposed to it being more omniscient from a fly-in-the-wall neutral perspective. If it were each chapter were spa and then you know you had it all from spa's perspective like say you know the expanse novels or um, game of thrones song of ice and fire or game of thrones yeah good example. example i would say i mentioned i have read expanse but you have been going heavy on them great books they're great books <sighs> they're good books <laughs> books you would read. rather have been reading apparently to be fair well, i also read this so clearly yeah. i wanted something the problem is, I really shouldn't have um, read this book in the same two weeks that I read, like, a ton of really good books. Like, I read a really funny series. I really read a really exciting and heart-pounding series with a lot of heart to it. And I read one of the great works of literature, like, of all time. And then I read this. Going, and that's not... Monte Monte Cristo yeah, to Sagasta's Prayer. I mean... It's, is he right? It's not fair. Like, um, it's, it's not fair on poor Gareth. Uh, poor Gary. I um, Okay, I want to say a few things now on your points. Because uh, yep. I've just come up with a lovely old metaphor for how I feel about um, third person uh, limited present tense. Okay. Uh, versus third person limited present tense. And to me, it's like it's having like the door to your gas tank on like the left or right hand side of your car. Like, yeah, preferably. 
it would like to be on the same side as the driver so that I can mm-hmm. just get out, down to walk around the vehicle. But it doesn't really matter to me. Do you care if a book was written in the second tense? I notice. I can't not notice if it's in the second tense. And I find that the second tense, this thing is the only book I've read with a real uh, predominant second tense was um, N.K. Jesmond's Broken uh, mm. Earth trilogy. And I'll yeah. tell you now, beautiful use of it. Yes, agreed, like, agreed. And a very intelligent use. use of it. The second person is used there. And you know what? Actually, you know what? this is a great example of how tense creates meaning and creates an appropriate sensation. Because the second tense in that book, the first book has three perspective characters. And only one of them writes in the second tense. But the sensation of second tense is so cold and it's so distant and it isolates you from the main character. Even though it's saying, this is happening to you, it doesn't feel like it's happening to me. It feels like it's happening to someone else. And that's great, because that character has just experienced a horrible, horrible traumatic event, and they are disassociating. All the events which come afterwards are almost seen from the outside, as though they're not even in their own body. So writing in the second person is fantastic. It's such an inspired choice. And that's why it's one of the few examples of that being done well. And it lends itself, though, to the opening prologue in this book. Mm-hmm. Why I seem to be talking about the city. Because I'm like, I'm outside. I'm I'm this presence, but I'm clearly not a person. That's right. I've got this dissociation. And when I had that reading, and fair, it still works with the gods. It works, I just don't think it works as well as I first thought. But I thought that was really effective use. And I really liked it there. Um, because you I feel like did you're not looking like down on people. I didn't like that at all because I instinctively am very wary of second person because with the one exception of... Oh, two exceptions. One exception being the fifth season and the Broken Earth trilogy, an amazing example of it being written well. The only other example I've ever experienced of the second person being well written was an early episode of uh, Welcome to Night Vale called A Story About You. You ever listen to Welcome to Night Vale, Duncan? No, never. Oh, Duncan, you should re- you should listen to it. It's it's really funny. It's really fantastic, and it is a work of fantasy. So uh, I'd recommend listening to that. We'll talk more about it after the episode, but listen to the first couple episodes. Listen to a story about you, and um, you'll see what I mean. A really, really well written uh, written episode of that show. But second person, by and large, a very pretentious choice, and. I'm actually starting to wonder. I wonder if Gareth Hanrahan started writing in the second person, knowing, like, I want to tell the, sp- the perspective of the story from the perspective of one of these evil gods. Uh, so it becomes a mystery about who was I in that first prologue. I want to find out more. And because he was writing in second person present... He then felt obliged to write in third-person present throughout the rest of the book, as opposed to past tense. I wonder if that could be the case. I wonder too, but to be honest, I, I, I'm not wondering that. I, okay. well, you lied to me. I, I don't want to, yeah, project too much on. I don't know how really to kind of fill this out. Um, to people interested or on the fence about the Gus's Prayer, if you're a fan of, say, Daniel Polanski's Lowtown Trilogy, Straight Razor Cure, or I can only think of a couple of examples. Um, 
Daniel Green's uh, recent book he just brought out, Rebel's Creed, or of what I think is one of the exemplaries of the sort of urban fantasy thieves and thieves guild genre heists, Liza Lockmora. If you're a fan of them, know this book isn't as good as them, but it is more of that. And if that's already right up your street, as it is with mine, where you're so enamoured just to kind of get a story like that, you're okay to overlook a few faults and have it where the world building definitely upstages the characterization. then I recommend The Gus's Prayer. Uh, I, have two rec- I have two recommendations for this week. Um, if you are looking for a, a world which is imbued with this ancient sense of magic, which never can quite be understood, strange gods and and mingled with alchemical creations which are inhuman and sort of puts you at a distance to the rest of a world and you want to interact with some really interesting characters in a fun and dynamic way in which you feel in control of a narrative i'd recommend playing the video game dishonored it's a really good example of urban diesel fantasy and uh yeah it does a good job of world building in a very subtle approach uh, which doesn't feel like it's lecturing you at any times. Oh, um, man. Yeah. But this and that's also just a good video game. Uh, my and second it's... recommendation, if you want to read a really good and surprisingly approachable book, I recommend A Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, even if you only read the first half, which kind of feels like a completely separate story, uh, and I say first half, I mean first part, by which, of course, I mean the first quarter of the book, um, the rest the rest of the book is completely different to that and i understand if people are alienated by it and don't want to keep reading but yeah incredibly well written very approachable feels a lot like a dickens novel in that it's so easy to just chapters and chapters flow by you I, and just get through chapter one because there's a lot of sailing talk in the first chapter but don't worry it's not that doesn't exist throughout the rest of the book you won't hear anyone people talking about poop decks or or four sails in the rest of the book just get past chapter one Wow. Okay, then. I think this is our most ardent disagreement we've ever had over a book. Uh, and for that, I'm proud of. Yeah. That was a good pick for me. It's probably not as bad as Malice. I just enjoyed... It's I was not. just more eager to pick up Malice. And I had stronger feelings about Malice. Like, I was more excited to roll my eyes at Malice and to go, oh, come on, um, than I was in in this book. Like, in this book, I just didn't care that much. I think that's very, you know, that's a fair kind of viewpoint. You know, if Malice was getting a, a bigger response... That's right, It's yeah. similar how I feel about... Oh, no, I would say this. I, I did, no, I, I was about to say, oh, yeah, I had more, like, ironic fun with Twilight. No, I just had more fun with Twilight, um, to be honest. Mm. But I still enjoy this. I would love to hear, then, for everyone listening, do contact us at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com and tell us... What do you think? Are you with Geordie? Are you with me? Did you despise it? Do you love it? And do let me know. I want to hear. What's the, what are the there any like? books which you love about which are set in like an urban fantasy setting? Let's let's hear about them. Yeah, I think it's an underappreciated bit of the genre. But Geordie. Hello. Your turn. It's time to pick another book. Duncan, I've been so busy with reading other books that I haven't really had time to consider what other book I'm supposed to read. But I do have a list. I have a list of books which I want to read. And I've narrowed it down to two. So, Duncan, flip a coin. I shall. One moment. Heads, it's you. I don't know what either of these books are about. I have no idea. Tales? Okay. Uh, We're reading. (laughs) 
I don't know why I own this book. I don't remember purchasing this. Uh, a Demon in Silver, Book One of the War of the Archons. Oh, that better be available on Kindle. I think it should be. It's short. It's only 11 hours long. Ooh. Okay, I'm excited for this. So this is a fresh for you, fresh for me. Oh, baby, it's our first farm girl. It's a farm girl protagonist, Duncan. (gasps) Farm boy, farm boy, farm boy, farm boy. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. (laughs) I've been your host, Jordy Bailey. And I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel. Till next time. Bye-bye.